So perspective changes everything, doesn't it? Perspective changes everything. Many of you may not know. Um, many of you don't even know me, so you're like, who's this? I'm Matt. I'm the lead pastor here. But many of you that do know me may not know this, that I wear contacts. And you probably not, don't know this because I never wear glasses because I hate things in my peripheral. Just a pet peeve, okay? You won't catch me with sunglasses on. But um, what's... What's interesting is perspective for me changes vastly when I take my contacts out like I'm about to do. And I might regret this. Oh, you guys are grossed out by that. I can't see. And you guys are, oh, you're grossed out. Okay. Um, My perspective now is, oh my goodness, I was blinder than I thought. Um, I cannot read the biggest letters on our back wall, although I know what they say because it's our mission statement. I better know what they say. For the family as a family of Christ. I got it. All right. Um, That exit sign, a big blur of red. Obviously, I knew what it said too. Um, That's the Stonebridge logo, I think. And it's Jeremy. Good to see you. I didn't know until I said his name right there who was right there. And perspective changes things too when you forget to bring your notes up with you. Uh, But that's besides the point. Perspective changes everything. And sometimes we have these series graphics and they have little to do, if nothing to do, to be honest, sometimes with what we're talking about. But for Ecclesiastes, this has everything to do with what we're talking about. Because perspective changes everything. See, I took this photo in McCoe's Park um, a couple years ago, and it was just a beautiful fall day, okay? But the, re- the reality is that without my contacts in, and in this part of this picture, that is reality. What I'm perceiving right now is reality, okay? It's just a bit distorted, a lot distorted, because I'm actually more blind than I remembered. Um, I haven't done this in a while. I feel exposed, but um, it's, it's weird. Like I just can't see you. Um, and it's, it's a perspective that is true and real, but somewhat depressing, but reality nonetheless. But when I put my contacts back on and Jesus, please help them get back in my eyes. Um, I have a totally different perspective. And so if you look at the screen, I got it. Don't look at me. Look at the screen. That's why I was trying to direct your attention there. But in the glasses, in the glasses, you can see, oh, this is why I brought that mirror, I guess. Don't pay attention to me. Um, That's the lens of Christ. Well, now you can see me through the mirror, but whatever. I'm more distracted by this than I ever thought I would be. Um, Okay. We good. Um. This is the perspective of Christ. And this is actually what we were just singing about too. So I love the moment in the song it is well. And I've remembered this as we were singing it here. I love the moment when the drums are just going. They're going. And and the electric guitar is just like minor over here. Stuart's rocking. It's like this minor key going. While we're belting out, it is well with my soul. And I love that because that is life as a Christian around us. Things are chaos sometimes. And all of the time, our world is in chaos. It's a broken, sin-stained, evil-filled, hurt-filled world. Yet, when we 
look to Christ. It can be well with our souls. And so we cannot read Ecclesiastes without a Christ lens as Christ followers. It doesn't make sense. You'll walk away depressed. We have to look at it through the lens of Christ. Ecclesiastes offers us a sobering perspective on reality and what Solomon calls, the writer of Ecclesiastes, perspective under the sun. And so life under the sun is a perspective of this world without taking God into account. Now that may sound startling to you. And here's why that would maybe sound startling. Um, Because why would you not take God into account as you're writing a book of the Bible? Why would this be even helpful to us, much less in God's word? So I want to give you two reasons, two main reasons why it's helpful to us to have this perspective of life under the sun and why this is in God's word. And I want you to remember these two things for the rest of this series. So yes, I'm telling you, what I'm about to say is probably more important than the rest of the things I'm about to say today. So one, it helps us see this world properly so that we can reach this world effectively. It helps us see this world properly so that we can reach this world effectively. We can become way too naive as Christians. We can can go around and and sing, so, so to speak, kumbaya, I've got Jesus, right? Especially when others are hurting around us, we can just go, man, why aren't you full of the joy of the Lord and become downright rude to people? become insensitive and naive and the reality is that we live in a broken, sin-filled, hurting, evil world and we cannot live for Jesus in this world effectively, much less introduce people to Jesus in this world effectively without understanding our broken world. So it helps us see this world pre-heaven, pre-new heavens and new earth. It's coming, it's gonna be great. It's not there yet. It helps us see this world properly. And secondly, it helps us have realistic expectations of this world. Helps us have realistic expectations of this world. This world is not our home. As the great hymn goes, we're just a passing through. It will not, it cannot give you what your heart truly longs and craves. Don't expect it to. I'm sure all of us could have saved ourselves a lot of trouble in life if we just would have tempered our expectations of this broken, sinful world. We learn, and you're going to see this in a second in Ecclesiastes. We're going to learn in chapter 1, verse 1 and verse 12, that Solomon, as I said earlier, the king of Israel, David's son, who wrote a lot of the Psalms, wrote Ecclesiastes. And most likely, he was an old man looking back at his life, and he's writing this from the perspective of an old man looking back. See, when he was young, as we learn in scripture, that he got to ask God for anything he wanted and he wisely chose wisdom and he received that, but he squandered his wisdom by living it up. Sensuous living, just indulged himself in anything and everything he could. And Ecclesiastes is his insightful conclusion after he seemingly repented of that lifestyle And he's looking back on it. So let's take a look at Solomon's sobering perspective under the sun without taking God into account. Ecclesiastes 1, 
starting in verse 1. And I'll be reading from the CSB if you have your app. By the way, right in the middle. So, easy to find. Ecclesiastes 1, verse 1. The words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. Absolute futility, says the teacher. Absolute futility. Everything is futile. What does a person gain for all his efforts that he labors at under the sun? A generation goes, a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets, panting and returns to the place where it rises, gusting to the south, turning to the north, turning, turning goes the wind, and the wind returns in its cycles. All the streams flow to the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are wearisome. More than anyone can say, the eye is not satisfied by seeing or the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. There is nothing new under the sun. Can one say about anything, look, this is new? It's already existed in the ages before. There's no remembrance of those who come before, and of those who will come after. There will be no remembrance by those who follow them. I, the teacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem. I applied my mind to examine and explore through wisdom all that is done under heaven. God has given people this miserable task to keep them occupied. I've seen all the things that are done under the sun and have found everything to be futile, a pursuit of the wind. What is crooked cannot be straightened. What is lacking cannot be counted. I said to myself, see, I've amassed wisdom far beyond all those who were in Jer- over Jerusalem before me. And my mind has thoroughly grasped wisdom and knowledge. I applied my mind to know wisdom and knowledge, madness and folly. I learned that this too is a pursuit of the wind. For with much wisdom is much sorrow. As knowledge increases, grief increases. Ecclesiastes 1. So let me first say, if you're here today and you have any inkling within you to doubt the validity of Scripture, how incredible that God himself would put this book in the Bible. He doesn't shy away from having a whole book dedicated to growing in perspective of a messed up world. He doesn't, God doesn't say, put a smile on and be Tigger, but he doesn't also say, hey, magnify your misery and really let people know you're going through a hard time and be Eeyore. That's not God on either end of the perspective. He acknowledges that this world has ups and downs and we need wisdom for both and everything in between. But God's word is living and active What I just read was scripture. That doesn't even sound like scripture if you've never heard this book before. What a great case for the validity of scripture. God addresses what we consider sometimes even hush-hush in the church. Who would do that if they were making it up? It's not neat. It's not tidy. It's not what you would expect, but it's exactly what you would expect from the God who is over everything and knows everything, including the harsh realities of this sinful world. So let's look more specifically at these sobering realities under the sun. Now, the first thing I need to point out is there's a word here 
In English, in the CSB, it's translated futility in verse 1. But this word in Hebrew, the original language, is hevel. Okay? I looked it up. I was hoping it had the nice Hebrew hevel. It doesn't. So I, I still wanted to do it for fun. But it's not. It's hevel. You just say it hevel. So not as fun. But that's besides the point. The word is used 30 times in Ecclesiastes. But it's not always the same English word, which is interesting. The, the word literally means breath or vapor. So the, probably the best way to think about this word is when you step out on a cold day, perhaps even today, unfortunately, you exhaled and you saw your breath and then it disappeared like that. That's the concept here. Fleeting. Here one moment, gone the next. Little to no substance to it. You can't even get your mind and head around it. You, it, it. It's this concept that everything is, some, some translations say vanity or meaningless, futile. Daniel Aiken, in his commentary on Ecclesiastes called Christ-Centered Exposition, would really recommend that whole series, Christ-centered exposition through the Bible. But he says this, he describes this word havel as frustrating because it's frail and fleeting. Those are great words for it. Everything is frustrating because it's frail and fleeting. He also goes on to say it can carry all of these connotations and context really must determine which specific nuance of the word the interpreter chooses. So that's why you see, as you look at the Hebrew and you look at the English next to each other, you see them translated different in different points in this. So I am going to, every time the word or the concept is used, I'm going to pick the English word that fits best for the context. If you've ever learned another language, by the way, this makes a lot of sense. There are some language, there are some words in English that just don't compute in other languages and vice versa. So this is one of them. So we're going to pick a different word to describe it. Um, So the first sobering reality under the sun we see in verses one and two is that everything is fleeting. Havel, fleeting. Everything. Verse one and two, the words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem, absolute futility, says the teacher. Absolute futility. Everything is futile. Sobering reality number one, and it permeates this whole book, by the way, is that every single thing, in a sense, is here one moment, gone the next. But it's not just fleeting. He says it's absolutely fleeting or absolutely futile. So if you think of in scripture, we see the term the holy of holies, which means the most holy place. Or you see the term song of songs, which means the best song. So it could be said here that everything is not just fleeting without God. It's the most fleeting. It's like time. I just wasted five seconds of your life. But time, gone, 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 here, gone the next moment. That is what he is saying. Everything is fleeting. Second sobering reality under the sun, work is rewardless. Havel, verse three, what does a person gain for all his efforts that he labors at under the sun? 
He's saying work of all kinds, paid jobs to the effort it takes to make a meal and everything in between, all effort and work is rewardless. Sure, you get paid. Sure, you get to eat your eggs for breakfast. But a lot of our work, we do a lot of work for not a lot. It's rewardless in a sense. There's a sense in which all our efforts are pretty rewardless for what we put into them. So an example of this, a couple weeks ago, I was like, you know what? I'm going to make a homemade queso dip. Okay, I'm not a very good cook, one. Two, um, homemade, loose term there, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make a homemade queso dip. I didn't raise the cow or, any, or the pig or anything like that, but I went out, I got chorizo, okay? I, I got some, a block of cheese and shredded it. That was big for me, a couple different types of cheese. I got some peppers and I cut them and I put them in the oven to char them and then got the stuff, I don't know, all, whatever the, the recipe online told me to do, I did it and um, slopped it all together in a crock pot, right? And I, this took hours. It took more money than I should have spent on a queso dip. And it took a lot of time. But I was excited, right? I ate it and I was like, yeah, that was good. I'll never do that again. Um, right? But this, this, this is what we're seeing in Proverbs. Sorry, not Proverbs. He, Solomon wrote that too. But Ecclesiastes 1 verse 3. Work, in a sense, is rewardless. You do all of this stuff. Oh, chip dip, gone. Cool. It's rewardless. Number three, nature is cyclical. Verses four through seven. It says, a generation goes, a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets, panting, it hurries back to the place where it rises, gusting to the south, turning to the north, turning, turning goes the wind, and the wind returns to its cycles. All the streams flow to the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. It makes me think of the water cycle. You remember that growing up? You have the clouds, it rains, goes in the streams, and then it warms up. Water vapor goes up, and cycle, cycle, cycle. That's what he's describing here. But it's not just water. He's saying wind, sun, nature in general. It's cyclical. There's endless cycles woven into the fabric of our physical world. Spring, summer, fall, winter. Spring, summer, fall, winter. Or in Iowa, uh, spring, winter, spring, winter, summer, fall. Spring, winter, spring, winter, summer, fall. Something like that. But that's Havel. Cyclical. Absolutely cyclical. Nature is cyclical. Number four, sobering reality under the sun is that humans are insatiable. Havel. Verse eight. All things are wearisome. More than anyone can say, the eye is not satisfied by seeing or the ear filled with hearing. Insatiable. And here's the tie into last week's message on Easter on satisfaction. It's like grasping for sand. You can never quite get your fingertips on it. You can never hold it. It just goes right through your hands. And apart from Christ, we are insatiable creatures. We are never satisfied. Our eyes, our ears, our mouths, our hearts will always crave more and more and more. We know this all too well in affluent America. You might argue, well, I'm content and satisfied sometimes. Maybe so. I hope so. But anytime you are, it's by God's grace. As, see, 
often as adults, even when we appear to be satisfied, inwardly we're not. We've just learned to put a good show on over the years. Inside, we're more like a toddler throwing a tantrum a lot of the time. Young kids are a prime case study on this. Every single kid of mine was born insatiable. I never taught them, I love you guys, but I never taught them to always want more and never be quite happy enough. They, they did that on their own. Even on like a perfect day, they can find something to complain about. The other day, it was finally sunny, nice, beautiful. We're outside. They're kicking a ball around, and the ball kept going in the direction they didn't want it to go. To go. Gravity, you know, it's a thing. It, it's tough. It's a harsh reality, right? But it just kept going the way they didn't want it to, and it absolutely ruined their afternoon outside. Havel, humans are insatiable. Number five, life is monotonous. Verses nine and 10. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. There's nothing new under the sun. Can one say about anything, look, this is new. It has already existed in the ages before us. Life in general just monotonously stays the same. And in verse 10, you might ask, how could they say that there's never anything new? I just got a new phone. I just bought a new house. You're thinking too specifically. He's saying that the same types of things are never new. Let me show you this graphic. Someone showed this to me in a sermon one time and it stuck with me. Nothing new is happening here. In both cases, the guy here is ignoring the person they're at the table with. Sure, new technology, but the same thing's going on. This is what Solomon is describing. Think of like fashion trends as well. Like for some reason, baggy jeans are back in apparently. Um, hello, early 2000s. Like that was, I should have kept them. I don't know. But, but the same types of things just go in cycles. It's monotonous. Life is monotonous. Number six, legacies are easily forgotten. Verse 11, there's no remembrance of those who came before and of those who will come after. There will be also be no remembrance by those who follow them. People's whole life work and legacy is quickly and easily forgotten. Let me show you an example. I hope this works. Who knows the name of their great-great-grandma? Anyone in here? No, raise them high. If this is going to work, I actually have to, all right. Okay, great, great. That is maybe 10% of you, maybe. We'll call it 15 to be safe. Um, do any of you know your great-grandma's legacy, what she was known for, the one that you just said you know her name? Does anyone? You can just say yes. Okay, one person, three people do. Wow, wow. I don't know the name of any of mine. I've never met anyone that could tell me that, so I would be fascinated to hear that afterwards. So that did backfire a little bit on me. Um, let's make it great, great, great grandma. Anyone know their name of their great, great, great grandma? You get my point. You get my point. Much less their legacy, okay? It's quickly, easily forgotten. I mean, your, your great, 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 great grandma could have helped secure voting rights for women. 
How many of us would actually know that? Legacies are very easily and quickly forgotten. Wisdom, number seven, is burdensome. Ecclesiastes 1, 12 to 18, I, the teacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem. I applied my mind to examine and explore through wisdom all that is done under heaven. God has given people this miserable task to keep them occupied. I've seen all the things that are done under the sun and have found everything to be futile, a pursuit of the wind. What is crooked cannot be straightened. What is lacking cannot be counted. I said to myself, see, I've amassed wisdom far beyond all those who were over Jerusalem before me, and my mind has thoroughly grasped wisdom and knowledge. I applied my mind to know wisdom and knowledge, madness and folly. I learned that this too is a pursuit of the wind. Verse 18, for with much wisdom is much sorrow. As knowledge increases, grief increases. Now, if you'll just turn over to the end of Ecclesiastes with me, to chapter 12, this is his conclusion. And we do need to go to the conclusion today to understand properly the perspective Solomon is trying to get at in this whole book. Ecclesiastes 12 verse 8 is where we'll pick it up. Here's his conclusion. It's where he started in, tw- in 1 verse 1. Absolute futility, says the teacher. Everything is futile. In addition to the teaching, being a, being a wise man, He constantly taught the people knowledge. He weighed, explored, and arranged many proverbs. The teacher sought to find delightful sayings and write words of truth accurately, probably proverbs, the whole book he's talking about, or a lot of it that he wrote. The sayings of the wise are like cattle prods, and those from masters of collections are like firmly embedded nails. The sayings are given by one shepherd. And verse 12, but beyond these, my son, be warned. There is no end to the making of many books, and much study wearies the body. What a take on wisdom. 118, okay, said that wisdom produces sorrow and grief. And 12 verse 12 says, us, says that wisdom wearies the body. Now, what he isn't saying is that knowledge and wisdom isn't worth pursuing. That is not true. He wouldn't agree with that. He, you'll see throughout the rest of the book, it's, he, he speaks of the glories of pursuing wisdom and knowledge. But he is saying that the more you know and understand, the more weighty life will become to you. I mean, you, you've experienced this. There is, in a sense, the phrase ignorance is bliss in which that is true. You can't worry about problems that you don't know exist. He's just saying, the more you know, the more weighty life becomes. Even wisdom itself is quite a burden in a lot of ways. It's fleeting. It's meaningless. Havel. Now I want to switch gears. Because Solomon switches gears. See, Solomon throughout this kind of what I would call just kind of like comes up for air. And it's like his older self that's writing this comes up and brings perspective from God, which is fantastic. So he states his conclusion, which we're going to read in a second in chapter 12. And it's super important understanding the whole book. And he goes from pointing out the sobering realities under the sun without God, to stating realities over the sun. This is the perspective of what I'm going to call God over us. So realities over the sun. 
Ecclesiastes 12, 13 and 14. When all has been heard, the conclusion of the matter is this. Fear God and keep his commands because this is for all humanity. For God will bring every act to judgment, including every hidden thing, whether good or evil. This is a perspective of God over us, which is also a real reality that I would highly encourage all of us to have. You have to have this reality before you can even embrace the reality I'll talk about later. God over us. God, we need to fear God, verse 13. To be in awe of God, be amazed by God, and even to an extent be afraid of God because he is so powerful and could do anything. We need to obey God in verse 13. In verse 14, it's this perspective that God is over us and he sees it all and he's the judge. Solomon's perspective and everyone else in the Old Testament has this perspective of life over the sun. God over us. God is to be feared. He's to be obeyed and he sees everything so you better shape up. That's a great starting point. It's still incomplete though. If I took one contact out, which I'm not going to, but I did, if I did, it would be better than having both contacts out, but in a way, it would actually be more maddening to me because I'd be doing this thing, you know? So this perspective is getting there, but it's not there yet. So this perspective is okay, but not great, not the best. But I wanna show you, before we move on, how each reality under the sun compares to this reality over the sun. And I want to put the references, some references from Ecclesiastes that you can look at on your own. So next slide. Reality over the sun. We go from everything is fleeting to everything matters eternally. And we just saw it because he said, I'm going to bring everything to judgment. We just read that verse. So everything does matter eternally. He's going to hold you accountable. Number two, work is rewardless. To work is consequential. And we're going to see that next week in chapter two. It absolutely produces things and means something. Number three, nature is cyclical. Two, God is in control of nature. And we'll see that in chapter 11. Number four, we go from humans are insatiable to God is enough for humans. We're going to see that in chapter 3. Beautiful, beautiful verse. I'll leave that to the person preaching chapter 3. And by the way, as I go along, both these are true simultaneously. They're just different perspectives. Okay? Number five, life is monotonous to life is ordained by God. Same verse, beautiful verse. Linchpin of the whole book in a sense. Take a look yourself. Legacies are easily forgotten. To legacies are remembered by God. They really do matter. Wisdom is burdensome. Goes to wisdom helps us know about God. Wisdom and knowledge helps us understand God better. And so this is the perspective of Solomon over the sun. A perspective of God over us. But I want to get to a hope-filled reality under the sun. But not S-U-N. I want to get to the hope-filled reality under the S-O-N, Jesus Christ, because he is here with us today. John 10.10, Jesus said, I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly. 
We are invited into this abundant life by walking moment by moment with Jesus. There are hope-filled realities under Christ, under the S-O-N, as we walk with Jesus. And all these principles I'm about to show you are all over the New Testament, and I can chapter verse them for you if you would like and send that to you later. But I didn't want to clutter the screen up even more than I already am. So, hope-filled realities under Christ. Number one, everything is a gift. It's not just that it matters eternally. Everything that is given to us is a gift of grace that we don't deserve from God. Work now is not just consequential. Work is a stewardship. This is something that God gave us as a gift to be used, and it's actually a gift from his. He owns it. He owns the work. And so it really does matter. All right. God is in control of nature, too. Nature is beautiful. We can now see that even on days when it snows in April, Wow, okay, I can even be reminded that even though my sins were like scarlet, they're washed white as snow. See, nature is beautiful. Next, number four, God is enough to human, or sorry, God is enough for humans to humans are content. We really can be content in this life, moment by moment. We are invited into this. Number five, life is ordained by God, which is true to life as a canvas. You see, God, yes, he is in control of everything, but now he invites us to create things and do things for his glory. There are good works he's prepared in advance for us to walk in. Number six, legacies are remembered by God goes to legacies. They're just not remembered by God. They really matter. They, have a, they make a difference on this planet that has echoes into eternity. And number seven, wisdom helps us know about God to wisdom helps us know God, to know him personally, to not just know facts about him, but now we can walk with him through the person of the Holy Spirit. Now, I've read Ecclesiastes several times in my life, and I've, it's always left a strange taste in my mouth, if I'm honest with you. Often I'm like, wow, that was depressing. Yet it's true. And wise, and it's God's word, so it's good for me, right? So how do I make sense of it now with a Christ lens? And it all came together for me in the last few weeks when I saw this. These three realities, go back. These three realities, leave this up the rest of the time. See, all of these are true. It's just different perspective. And we need all of that perspective. But this under Christ, God with us perspective is not fully realized until Jesus comes back and there's a new heaven and a new earth. And so we will get glimpses of this stuff, right? We will get tastes of it. But remember, you're in a broken world. Don't expect this to be like heaven because it's not. But we have an invitation today. And Heather said this earlier during worship. We have an invitation to walk in relationship with Jesus moment by moment. And as we do that, we can experience these foretastes, these breadcrumbs of heaven. This is what John 10.10 was talking about, what Jesus was talking about, this abundant life in Christ. That doesn't mean that you are going to be rich and famous and all this stuff. That's not what it means at all. It means that we can experience life the way God intended it to 
as we walk with Jesus. So take Jesus up on his invitation and walk with him for the first time or maybe for the millionth time and take him up on his invitation tomorrow and the next day and the next day and be well aware of the realities under the sun in this broken world. Be well aware of the realities over the sun as God is our sovereign, good king, but then enjoy the hope-filled realities of life under the S-O-N, Jesus Christ, who really is God with us. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you for the book of Ecclesiastes, and I thank you for the insight that you've given me even within the last few weeks to unlock its meaning and its significance and relevance to us today in 2023. And I pray that you would help us to embrace the perspective of Christ. Thank you that you invite us into that, Jesus. And so I pray for those in here, Lord, who have not tasted that perspective, that, they, that as they read Ecclesiastes 1, they just went, yes, yes, that is life. I pray that they would not just stay there, but they would be invited and feel invited and accept your invitation to walk with you, not just as their King and Lord, but as their Savior and their friend. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.